debut done back in uh, 2000. It was uh, between Nelson Mandela and Oprah Winfrey. Uh, the video popped up on my YouTube. Uh, I thought it was amazing that Mandela um, appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show. I thought it would be interesting, so I watched it. And uh, the first question that Oprah Winfrey opened with to Mandela was this. She said, How does a man spend 27 years in prison, put there by an oppressor, come out of that experience with not a heart of stone, a cold heart, but a heart that is willing to forgive and embrace? How is there no bitterness? And then, Mr. Mandela looked at her in response and said this, I hated oppression. And when I think about the past and the things they did, I feel angry. But we have a limited time on earth. And I know that there was, it was not through the contribution of one individual which would bring about liberation or peaceful transformation of the country. And so my first task when I came out of jail was to destroy the myth that I was something other than an ordinary human being. I think Oprah Winfrey's question was amazing. It's certainly not normal for people to think or act like this, especially when they don't deserve it or stand up for what is right, but Mandela did. And for those of you who do not know who Nelson Mandela was, he was an activist and politician who served as the first president of South Africa. He was the first black head of state and the first to be elected in a fully representative democratic election. And uh, what made Mandela's office so special was that it was known specifically for dismantling the legacy of apartheid. If you don't know what apartheid is, apartheid was a system of segregation and discrimination based on race. Nelson Mandela fought back on this and battled it by fostering racial reconciliation within his country. Super thankful for his life and legacy. His um, striving for and pursuit of justice and equality amongst image bearers. And even more, I'm thankful for Mandela's humility to lead a people and a country in this while all at the same time knowing that he himself was just an ordinary man. This morning as we open up to our text, I'd like to dial in on one characteristic that Nelson Mandela had, which here in our text, Mark, our author, is about to display in the life and ministry of Christ but in a far more glorious and infinite way. And that is the quality of humility. You see, just like Mandela, but in a far more glorious and infinite way, Christ came for and with a similar purpose. And that purpose was to make all things that are wrong right. Was to bring an agenda from God and set up a government slash kingdom from God for his people here on earth. And as he did it, he was treated with injustice. He was treated, treated with cruelty. And he was also opposed with hate. But you see, unlike Nelson Mandela, one of the biggest differences between him and Christ that was in his work was the fact that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the son of God. And as the only holy begotten son who was fully aware of his identity and status, which was sinless and divine, Christ was still willing 
to choose and endure suffering and harsh mistreatment to the point of death, death on a cross, because he knew that it was and is only through him and his perfect work that not just one nation, but all nations, not just one people, but all peoples, humanity indeed, all of creation itself could be forgiven and given true hope and freedom found in his salvation, which leads to eternal life. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn it on or open this morning. We're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 15, looking at the first 20 verses, verses 1 through 20. I've titled the sermon, The Humility of Christ for the Salvation of the World. Three points I'd like to make and explore together during this time are this. Number one, I'd like to show you how Christ was the silent son. Point number two, I'd like to show you how Christ was the sinless substitute and point number three, I'd like to show you how he was the suffering Savior. The, the silent son, the sinless substitute, and the suffering Savior. We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front again. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one of the prisoners for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. We are moving now to point number one. And I'd like to show you Christ, the silent son. We, uh, we have now reached the, uh, the point in our study, the 15th chapter of Mark, and have come to the final moments right before Christ's crucifixion. Uh, last week in our time together, we ended by examining Christ on trial before the Jewish high priest in the temple. And uh, during his trial, what we saw was accusation upon accusation made by the Sanhedrin, the religious higher-ups, seeking to convict Jesus with false charges. And at first, none of those false charges stuck 
because they were all lying, so none of their stories matched up. But finally, in the end, one of them did. In verse 61, if you remember, one of the high priests approached Jesus and asked him the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responded and said this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, from the Scriptures, both Daniel and Isaiah, Christ here was revealing that he was not only the Messiah, a.k.a. the Savior of God's people, Israel, but that he was also divine. Christ's use of the Scriptures here revealed to us that it was God the Father who gave him, the Son, all authority and dominion to rule and judge the earth. That's God's job. Only God can judge. Jesus here was making a claim of divinity. And it was over this one claim that indeed was true, that Christ spoke in front of this council of men in which they sought to condemn him, charge him with blasphemy, and then end that portion of text by delivering him over to death, which leads us here to our story this morning. If uh, you look there in verse 1, Mark begins our story by mentioning that it was morning. Historically, the Sanhedrin, this, uh, this group of men here, brought their business to Pilate um, as soon af- uh, after dawn as possible, and that's because the working day for a Roman official began at the earliest hour of daylight. Legal trials in the Roman courts during this time were usually held shortly after sunrise, and so if the chief priest had delayed until morning to examine Christ, and then sought to bring him before the governor after they would have arrived too late. This is one of the reasons why last week we saw their trial at night. And uh, the location of this story here is also significant. It takes place in Jerusalem, and that's because Jerusalem, together with the providence of Judea, was designated by Rome as something that they called subject territory. Subject territories um, were under the supervision of Roman authority, but had the right to retain their own legislation, administrations of justice, and local government. And so the Sanhedrin last week were not only able to exercise authority according to the Jewish law, but also a certain degree of civil justice and criminal jurisdiction. And under certain circumstances, these subject territories and people who were um, in charge were even able to pronounce death, give a death sentence. The only thing is that they were not able to execute it. They were just able to pronounce it. And so the Sanhedrin, in light of the trial last week, bring Jesus before Pilate. Because Pilate was the Roman magistrate who during this time alone had the right of the sword, alone had the right of death. He was the full bearer of imperial authority. But here's the thing in all of this that I want us to notice, which is the irony of the situation here. It's that Jesus, who actually is the king of the Jews in a deeply spiritual sense, up until this point of the book, has refused to lead an uprising against Rome. And if you remember, this is exactly what the, what the Jewish people longed for in the Messiah. And yet now, condemned for blasphemy by the Jews because of his spiritual claims, he is accused by them before Pilate for being precisely what he had disappointed them in not being, a political rebel. Mark doesn't describe the charges in detail here. All he says is that Christ claimed to be king of the Jews. But in Luke chapter 23, verse 3, it says that the chief priest approached Pilate and said this, This man subverts our nation. 
He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. One commentator about this wrote something helpful. This is what he said. There's nothing in the New Testament that suggests Jesus was a zealot. In fact, there's much to suggest otherwise. In both his teaching and ministry, Jesus departed significantly both from Jewish and Roman customs. And his message demanded the same of his followers. The Roman world did not separate religion from politics as does the post-Enlightenment West. It's true that Rome did not require Jews or other subjugated people to adopt Roman religion or emperor worship, but that did not mean that Rome was indifferent to Jewish faith, especially when its devotees claimed to be or were called kings. In other words, there was a certain connection between the Jews and Rome, and although they didn't share the same faith, they often shared common interests of power. And so for someone to say that they were king would have been an affront to Caesar. To claim to be the Messiah within the Jewish faith was not a crime in and of itself, but when translated into a political equivalent, king of the Jews, it became a matter of first concern. And so Pilate here asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? In Greek, the phrase actually reads, you are king of the Jews? Jesus says, you've said so. Jesus is not giving a direct affirmation here or else Pilate would have immediate grounds for execution, but neither is he giving a denial. Rather, Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would do well to consider this fact. And when the Jews heard his response of wisdom paired with piety and self-control, they hated him here all the more and continued to accuse him. This is the place where, where Pilate basically looked at Jesus and said, hey, buddy, You're in a really sticky situation. Don't you want to say something? Do you hear these accusations? Defend yourself. And this also is the place where Jesus looked at Pilate in the face of all these accusations and chose to say nothing. In other words, in the face of hatred, abuse, cruelty, false charges, injustice, which will eventually all lead him to death, Christ remained silent. And uh, if you notice there, Mark provides an editorial detail in verse 5. It says that Pilate was amazed. Pilate saw the silence of Christ and was amazed. My brothers and sisters, this is the appropriate response to the silence of Christ on trial before his death. To look at him in all of his innocence paired with silence and to stand amazed. In Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah wrote about one man, the the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, and provided a picture of salvation in that chapter accomplished through him. And in verse 2, he said this, He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men Hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why is a lamb led to the slaughter silent? Why is a sheep before its shearers is quiet? Because being unintelligent animals, a sheep and or lamb have no clue of where they're being led. They don't know what awaits them. 
They don't know what their destiny is, and so they just follow along. How then is this related to Christ and the good news of the gospel? Well, you see, although Jesus in the story remained quiet and opened not his mouth, he, as the Son of God, was fully aware of where he was going and what lied before him. In Mark chapter 8, he clearly said to his disciples this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The gospel here in this first point is found precisely in the silence of Christ. And what I mean by that is by all human reason and logic, Christ should have not here been silent. He should have fought back Iran. He should have defended himself, said, no way, I don't deserve this. Are you kidding me? You got it all wrong. I'm innocent. I'll prove it to you. I'm the one who wrote the scriptures. Let me show you why it's you who deserve death. You're the ones who are seeking to overthrow Rome. You hypocrites. You're the sinners. Etc. But he didn't. Rather, being fully aware of his status and identity and the mission of God found in his Father's will, which was death on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, Christ here chose to remain quiet. Hey, last week I told you that you're lovable. I just want to say it again here this week. You're lovable. From this text, we see the love of God as Christ had a resolve to stay silent in order for him to get to the cross for you. He knew it was coming. He knew crucifixion was right around the corner. He knew that lacerations and torture and harsh mistreatment to the point of death hanging on the cross was coming, but yet he chose to remain silent for you. In other words, what we see here is that the God of heaven humbled himself, became a man, and was found guilty by the ones who were truly were guilty and chose to remain silent in the face of his accusers and was sentenced to death to have you. Why? Because you are made in the image of God, thus have infinite, infinite value and worth. You are redeemable in God's eyes, and God has accomplished it in Christ. You see, it was for the joy set before Jesus that Christ endured the cross. And that joy in him was the thought of his Father's will being carried out and accomplished, completed. Through his humble, humble submission and perfect obedience, through Jesus, we get to be reconciled to God. So you see, as Jesus was silent here, he chose to say nothing, but he wasn't mindless. He was mindful, thinking of exactly you and me. You and me are what drove him to the cross. The cross is the place where God's love was poured out for you and me, and the gospel is in the silence of Jesus here. Amen? That was point number one, the silent son. I'd like to show you now, number two, how Christ also is the sinless substitute. Um, not too long ago, a well-named preacher by the name, by the name of uh, Tim Keller posted something on Twitter, um, a tweet on uh, the topic of humility. I thought it was an interesting tweet. This is, this is what Tim said. If you were to meet a truly humble person, you wouldn't think of him or her as humble but only that they were incredibly interested in you. I'll read that one more time. 
If you were to meet a truly humble person, you wouldn't think of him or her as humble, but only that they were incredibly interested in you. In other words, Tim is saying here that humility is expressed in selflessness for the sake of another's interest. This is what Mark in this next section of text is seeking to show us. In verse 6 through 15, we have the scene of Jesus before Pilate and Barabbas. And what Mark is longing to show us is how the humility of Christ is found in his substitutionary indictment. Each year in Rome, uh, during the Passover feast, it was custom to release one prisoner based upon popular request. And uh, Pilate here apparently thought this would be a good idea to provide uh, Jesus an opportunity to be released. And I, I say that because if you look at verse 14, Pilate found no fault in Jesus. So he took this man Barabbas in verse 7, who Mark describes as a, a leader of insurrection, a murderer, a nationalist, and stood him next to Christ. And then as these two men were standing in front of the crowd, he then looked at the crowd and said, well, who do you want? Do you want the king of the Jews or do you want Barabbas? And for the first time in this story, the chief priests speak up from the crowds and say, give us Barabbas. Another thing to take note of here is this, the, this is the first and only occurrence in all of the Gospels where the idea of envy is found. In verse 10, envy is grief or anger caused by another's success. This is here in the, in the Jews. They're envious of Christ, and their envy was probably not just because Jesus had influence and greatness in ministry, but also because he was pious and unmoving with character here. And so seeing this, Pilate quickly realized that these Jewish officials had other issues with Christ, issues of religious nature, which he himself had no interest in. And so in his second attempt to release Jesus, when, it, when he asked them what he should do with Christ, it was not based on principles of humanity or justice, but rather based on fear. In other words, as Pilate dealt with the crowd, he turned into a coward. Because he saw the right thing to do, he knew it was right, let Jesus go. But instead of doing that for the sake of retaining favor before the Jews, after they chanted crucify him, he condemned Jesus to death. This is yet another reverse testimony to Jesus' exalted status and integrity. Again, we have an, another ironic presentation which is found in the fact that Jesus was falsely accused by the Jews and condemned by Pilate for the very thing of which Barabbas was guilty of. Barabbas' name is significant here. It means son of the father or son of the great one. Jesus is the son of the father and the son of the great one. But here in this text, we have the pseudo son being freed only for the true Son of God to be found guilty and die. And so Mark is picturing Christ as a substitute for the sinner and by implication as application to us for all sinners. I, I can go on with contextual and historical details here, but I'm going to choose not to because I really want to draw your attention to this one simple yet profoundly powerful thing. It's that Jesus, the sinless man, was condemned and became a substitute for the sinful man, Barabbas. I don't know how else to strikingly say it. The crowd chose Barabbas over the Son of God. They rooted for the murderer, the rebel, the sinner, the unholy, unrighteous, 
evil man who was full of hate and wretchedness over the perfect, spotless, holy, begotten, sinless Son of God. And guess what? Uh, This is where our weeping and joy simultaneously begin. Why? Because this is where Christ in his fullness before the cross begins to lay down his life. And the thing that we need to be reminded of here concerning this picture through the doctrine of sovereignty is that it was actually not the crowd, not the chief priest, not even Pilate who chose this, but rather it was God himself. A.K.A. as Jesus submits to his Father, it is Christ who is in control. In other words, with selfless love in the interest of Barabbas' freedom, Jesus let him go. In Mark chapter 10, we have yet another prophecy concerning this fulfilled. Jesus looked at the disciples and said this, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And there they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. You see, in a very real way, Pilate and the crowd were responsible for the death of Christ, but also, in a very real way, God in his sovereign reign and rule willed this to come to pass. He wrote this part of the story, and Jesus, the suffering servant, carried it out. And so I'm asking you, in light of this, what do you think? What emotions or thoughts does the humility of Christ spark in you? Or the fact that God was willing to let Barabbas go. What does that do in you? The good news of the gospel is that God's will is actually to set people like this free. Christ frees the worst of sinners by taking their place. What we have here is revealed to us the heart and character of God, that Jesus saw the value and beauty of his Father's will to let the murderer go and instead, as the innocent one, be his substitute. That's a scandal. The Holy One, the the Divine One, the one who had infinite relationship with God the Father preeminently before the beginning of time, here is condemned and found guilty and instead, let a murderer go. Now we're getting to the true gospel and essence and beauty of the kingdom. And so, like Pilate, I just want to ask you the same question. Who do you want? Do you want a type of leader or God who is aggressive or political, who knows how to stir or gather a crowd against a world government for nationalistic hope? Or do you long for a humble and merciful Savior who's come to make all things right by laying down his life, even being condemned for the worst of the worst in order to show mercy and set sinners free? I know it's really hard to actually desire that, especially that last thing I said. And actually, we would not be able to do that without first identifying the depth of who we are as people before God without Jesus. And so in this last point, as we conclude, um, this is what I'd like to show you. That was point number two, the sinless substitute. I'd like to finish now 
And point number three, with the suffering Savior. Well, in the final portion of this text, Jesus is taken away and flogged. Um, After being sentenced to crucifixion, which was a means of execution for criminals convicted of the highest form of treason, the soldiers took Jesus away inside the palace and began to thrash him. And one commentator, to describe the details of what took place, said this, A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or pillar, or sometimes thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by Mark, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather thongs woven with uh, several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law. And men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. Josephus recorded that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. In other words, there was an immense amount of physical suffering found in the scourging of Christ here in this text. But the thing that I really want to turn your attention to in all of this is that Mark, as much as he mentions the physical elements of Jesus' sufferings here, is actually even more concerned with showing us his emotional and spiritual pain. If you look, the thing that Mark really is focused on here is this idea found in verse 20 of mocking. It's highlighted in the detailed process of the guards to hail him as king. They uh, put on Jesus' body a faded scarlet cloak or some sort of shabby purple rug. They pressed down on his head a wreath made of broken branches. And then after this, they pretended to hail Christ as king. They presented him in all of his insincere royal attire and to to pay homage to the divine kingship in which he claimed, they said, hail the, the king of the Jews. You see, what was really mocked here was the divinity of Christ and the salvation found within the sovereign will of the almighty God. It was his eternal love, eternal love and mercy that was scourged, shamed, and rejected. And in Luke's account, it goes on to say that they looked at him, mocked him, and they said, prophesy. And so I ask us, what is this a picture of? What is this that we are seeing? This is a picture of none other than God himself willingly being taken over by his creation, submitting to the power of sin and to evil to eventually get to and endure the cross. Mark here is yet again revealing the love and character of God And this is where we see how Christ was humbly determined to making full payment and atonement for our sin. I quoted a little bit of Isaiah chapter 53 earlier. This text really does summarize that picture we see in the chapter. But for time's sake, I just want to quote one small little portion that we see in all of its fulfillment. Isaiah said, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. The wounds that Isaiah was referring to are the wounds found here in this text, which means as Christ kneeled there, naked, tied to a post, and the guards whipped him with those torture instruments, each and every strike was not just 
a physical pain, but came with it the eternal weight of our and the world's sins. This is how, by his wounds, we are healed. Every one of the lashes carried with it the weight of our and the world's sins from eternity past. Here is where the substitutionary work of Christ leading to the cross begins. Isaiah goes on to say this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. My brothers and sisters, I'm trying to show you here this morning that Christ did this for you and for me, and not just for Barabbas. Me and you are the crowd. Me and you are Pilate. Me and you are Barabbas. We are sinners. And our sin is actually that severe that our sin against the holy and righteous God is wretched and rebellious. We deserve death. And yet it was the will of God to be merciful and deal with us and send his son to lay down his life and endure this for you and for me. Christ is the sinless substitute, the suffering Savior. It is by his wounds that we are healed. He lets Barabbas and people like us go because he's merciful. You see, the freedom of Barabbas and the wounds of Christ can never be good news if we do not first come to terms with this, the weight, reality, and depth of our sin. But if we do and behold the Savior in this story, this then becomes the most beautiful, most glorious news in the whole entire world that Christ suffered and died. This is why Jesus' humiliation actually is for us his exaltation because this is where our, our salvation begins. There is a substitutionary work, a great exchange. When we struggle over our sin and failure and seek to condemn ourselves, Christ, the great Savior, stands before us and says, I have given you my righteousness and taken upon myself in my own story all of the weight of the curse. You are guiltless. You can go. You're free. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's who you are. Righteous because of Christ. Amen? I pray that we would take this text, being re regenerated, born of the Spirit, and learn how to die with Christ for the sake of honoring Him and uh, reaching the world with selfless love and true humility. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. You're the great King of heaven. You laid aside your crown. Even in all of our rebellion, you lay down your life to save us and offer out the free gift of salvation. There is indeed forgiveness and love through your great accomplishment. Thank you that you're setting us up for the cross next week. We can't wait to get to it. You've died. You've rose. You've overcome the de uh, death. Bless us, Lord, as we think about this. May we go, therefore, now because of your work in freedom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing in response.